Okay, good morning, everybody. It's really an honor to be back with you and to preach from God's Word. That's a blessing. Uh, it's also a blessing to hear the preaching of God's Word. Uh, for a preacher, that's a blessing. And it's one many don't uh, take advantage of. So I've been blessed to hear God's Word like last week, to hear it on the road coming home, and to know that when God's Word is preached in a nation, there remains hope. So praise the Lord. Two things I want to say about TJ and his ministry uh, before we get started. One thing you may not know is how we even became connected in the first place. Uh, a post or a memory came up on Facebook the other day about a request that I put out. I thought it was 10 years ago, but TJ said it was 9. I'll defer to him on that. But it was a long time ago. A request was put out. I was traveling around Peru, and I needed a place to stay in Lima, and I put a request out on Facebook. If, does anyone know any Bible believers in this area who might be willing to open their home to a stranger, a traveling preacher? And that message traveled through some different corridors and eventually made its way to TJ and Pam, and they were presented with an opportunity to do something that a lot of Christian people won't do, uh, that, that used to be very common. Years and years ago, preachers could travel around America and never have to worry about a place to stay. Those days are gone, and many of us are hesitant about opening our homes to strangers because of the, the uh, environment we live in. And so they wrestled with that, as all of us do, but they took a step of faith and opened their home. And as a result, I got to meet these believers who have been friends of ours ever since. So it goes back to a simple request, and it reminds me of what Jesus says. And many times we have a need, and we won't ask the Lord, and we won't ask others for help. And Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that day when, that when I was asking for a place to stay, it would result in not only a place to stay, but a relationship and a partnership with a ministry. There's another thing I want to say about T.J. and his ministry that he won't say up here, but something that gives me great encouragement and gave me great encouragement. I watched a lot of folks, a lot of Christians, a lot of churches, and a lot of ministries during the COVID foolishness. Because oftentimes great evil reveals great evil in the heart of its victims. And there's a lot about COVID that exposed the hearts of Christians more than it infected their bodies. And it was an honor for me to watch these guys continue their work uninterrupted as God gave them great liberty during the COVID madness. And make no mistake, what happened in Peru and a lot of these other countries particularly in the third world, was a window of opportunity for petty dictators and tyrants to increase their power. And they took advantage of it, as human beings do. And so the lockdowns and the restrictions were far more draconian down in Peru. The risk of trouble was far greater than it was for us here, and yet they continued doing what they do and did not hand authority that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ over to Caesar. They didn't do that. And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of what God did for the Apostle Paul in the city of Rome. 
There's great truth in the very last couple of verses of the book of Acts. And I used to teach these to our volunteer teams in South Asia and Peru. Paul was under house arrest. Paul went to Rome. God got him there in a way he didn't envision. And we're told there that for two whole years, under house arrest, Paul labored. No man forbidding him. When all the cards were stacked against him, Paul did what he does. Unafraid of Caesar, unafraid of the consequences, and God blessed it. And we've heard testimony of that this morning. God's blessed their ministry for being faithful, and now they have more, more kids coming and they know what to do with. That's a blessing. God blessed our church because we continued to meet. And we, we saw people added to the fellowship and baptism. God has blessed Christian businesses around this country that use their businesses to be an example and a witness for Christ foremost, who refused to shut down, went about business as normal. Now they're prospering, even in inflation. So I just praise God for that. I'm reminded of what God told the prophet Isaiah in chapter 8. He said, do not unite yourself and your family do not make a confederacy with this people. Do not fear their fear. But you make me, God said, your fear and your dread, and I will be your sanctuary. And I think that there's a living, breathing example of that with Heart of Christ Ministries. And I praise God for that. I praise God for Christian pastors and preachers and missionaries who aren't cowards and who are willing to take risk for the gospel. But what risk is there when your life is in Christ and you have eternal life already? Is there really any risk? So I just thought that was worth saying. That's worth saying, and I'll say it, and I'm proud, and I'm, I don't even like to use that word proud, but I'm thankful to know these folks. And praise God, I didn't act like I do a lot of times and refuse to ask for help and try to fix things myself, and I just decided to ask for help that day. And it was a blessing. So I praise God we've been able to labor together and... Enjoy each other's fellowship. We did so last night, and it's just an honor. That's rest for me to come home from a long walk as the fellowship with good brethren. So praise the Lord. Another thing I want to mention, uh, Eric texted me. I'm going to embarrass him a little bit. Uh, Eric texted me Thursday morning after our Wednesday night presentation, and he texted me and apologized for dropping the ball with the presentation on Wednesday night. And I said to Eric, that's absolutely ridiculous. And I think we all need to affirm that this morning in public. That's ridiculous. I was just blessed to see those pictures and to hear him recount things. And him taking the lead on that made my life easier. Praise God. So one of the things I didn't share or we didn't share Wednesday night, and that was more a time of testimony for what God has done and not a time for prayer requests of what we want God to do. But just pray for us. Um, the next leg of this journey is difficult, the terrain is difficult, the topography is difficult, and the time element is difficult. The winter comes a lot quicker out there than it does here. Our routes will be effective. There are some routes that are going to go through wilderness areas and over high elevation that we're going to have to make sure we can get to before those snows start to come in. There are access points that involve roads that are not plowed during the winter. So we're under a little bit of a time element, and if we miss it, we may have to walk all the way around something. I do know that the roads in Yellowstone close on November the 7th. 
So that's something we're praying about. We're actually seeking the Lord on whether we should just go ahead and knock out. There's a particular wilderness portion of about 50 miles. Wondering if we should just go ahead and do that. September's a prime time for that. Or whether we should just continue on as we're going and trust the Lord to bring it to pass. I'd appreciate your prayers. I did read where Yellowstone, as well as a few other national parks, have reinstated a mask reinstated a mask mandate. Well, I'm just here to let you know we will not be wearing masks when we walk through Yellowstone National Park. And if I need to go to a restroom in, a, in the national park that my tax dollars pay for, I will do it and I will breathe freely. So just l- let's go on record there. But I'd appreciate your prayers. We've just got... It's easy to walk and plan a route when all you got is a straight road ahead of you, not a tree in sight, nothing but the big sky. But when the mountains start coming around, there's a reason why roads are few in certain places in America. It has to do with topography. So I'd appreciate your prayers in those matters. We're hoping that we can go out mid-August and get a good leg in up until Thanksgiving. And then we'll just have to decide at that point, depending on where we are. So I'd appreciate it. But I, I was blessed by the testimony the other night, there were things I'd forgotten about that Eric was able to remind me of. And the Lord was good, and you guys were faithful to pray for us and support us. And I want to say thank you again. All right. I know we're trying to not be so long-winded in here. I was pretty shocked last week when at 1230, Daniel's wrapping it up with a closing prayer. And so that puts a little pressure on me this morning. But it's okay. Let's turn to Revelation 21. I'm just going to focus this morning. I had a larger focus, but we got time. I'll, I'll, I'll be blessed to share with you in the coming weeks. I want to focus this morning on a couple of verses. The le- we left off, if you remember, Revelation 21, 21 was where we stopped. Okay? Just for sake of review, and I won't repeat this again. You can find this on the previous podcast. Studies in Revelation podcast. But from chapter 21, verse 10 in Revelation until chapter 22, verse 5, we have a detailed blueprint of the New Jerusalem. It is said of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11 that he was willing to go out. Abraham was a rich man who was willing to leave his home, leave his land, and go into a place that he knew nothing about simply because God told him to. And he obeyed, and he went out, it says, not knowing whither he went. And then it said that Abraham wasn't looking for a new city. He wasn't looking for a piece of land to purchase and to build a new house. Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so did the fathers. All of those who died not having received the promises but were convinced and persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But these seek a better country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. The things that the fathers looked for The patriarchs, way back in Genesis, are laid out for us here in Revelation 21. We have a detailed blueprint of the new Jerusalem, what Hebrews calls the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the bride. 
It's the Lamb's wife. It's the church's eternal home. The church and her home are synonymous. It's our future hope. The city that God has prepared for all those who die in faith. In verse 10, we talked about its descent that John saw in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 11, we talked about its substance was the glory of God that shone like a jasper. We looked at its walls in verses 12 through 14. We saw its dimensions in verses 15 through 17, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, the length as wide as the breadth. We talked a little bit about the shape and what that looks like. I believe that that's describing a pyramid form, what's called a mountain of the Lord's house in the Old Testament, not a cube as some people describe. Uh, that's my, my conclusions from the studies of the Scripture. Do with it what you may. Verses 18 through 21, we looked at the construction. We looked at the construction. And so remember, when people say, when they talk about going to those streets of gold, just remember, that's not what it says here. The street is of gold. So what I read here is a single street, a single main avenue. So just remember that. People tend to repeat things from the Scriptures, little cliches that often are not either not found there or that's not what they say. So God never says in the Bible, if you build it, they will come. That's not in the Bible. Now, I've heard people say that. There's a lot of people that say stuff's in the Bible that's not there, and stuff's not in the Bible when it is there. The answer for how to deal with every single social problem in this country is found in the Bible. And it's, and it, and it's in detail. Good instruction... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Very simple. Yet we don't have the stomach for it. In fact, we don't even like to talk about the solution for these social problems. But we looked at all of these things. Today I want to look at verses 22 and 23. We're going to talk about this city's nightlife. It's nightlife. So let's read God's Word here this morning. Chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Hallelujah. Amen. It almost needs no commentary. These scriptures need no interpretation. They are plain. And they're a source of joy and gladness. Here we see this city's nightlife. You know, when people go to cities and visit cities and take vacation to cities, they love the nightlife. It's all about the nightlife. If a city has a great nightlife, then people go and enjoy it. And a lot of times you'll see more folks on the streets at night than you do in the daytime. But the nightlife of this city, the New Jerusalem, is quite different than any nightlife you'll find in America's wicked-as-hell cities and in the God-forsaken cities of this world. It's very different. Did you know that 
Do you know who, who, biblically, would you say is the father of all man-made religion? You see, all man-made religion, whether it's Islam, Catholicism, Mormonism, JWs, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, Baha'i religion, the Native American religions, or even uh, uh, American churchianity, it all goes back to one father, just like the human race goes back to one father. It all goes back to Adam, but it also goes back to Noah and his sons, uh, one father. Who's the father of all man-made religions? It's Cain. It's not the devil. It's Cain. Cain is the father of all those that say, you know what? I'm going to worship God my way. I'm going to come to God on my terms. That is the essence of man-made religion. Now, Satan is the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. And he's the father of deceit that deceives all man-made religions. But he does it by appealing to an element of fallen human nature. The element that's very similar to his element. I will be like the Most High, and I will decide how He is to be worshipped. My friends, you do not come to God on your own terms. You do not serve God on your own terms. A lot of people thought they could serve God on their own terms during COVID, so they locked everything down. That's the way of Cain, and the Bible warns us about it. Cain is the father of all man-made religion. And I've enjoyed saying that and sharing that with Jews and Israelis because they know who Cain is. And they think of him as a murderer. And Cain did what man-made religion's always done. Murders those who are more righteous than them. But Cain is also the father of something else. Not just man-made religions. He's the first person that ever went out and did what? Built a city. Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bare a son named Enoch. And Cain went out and built a city and named it after his son Enoch. Cain is also the father of the city. The conglomeration of humanity when God told humanity to spread out and not to concentrate in certain areas. The Bible tells us in Revelation 16 verse 19 that when the angel pours out the seventh vial of God's wrath, that there will be a a great earthquake. And when that great earthquake shakes the foundations of this world, notice the Bible always talks about the foundations of the world. Now, I don't know how NASA explains that because what they tell us everything looks like has no place for a foundation. But God shakes the pillars and the foundations. And what happens? The great city of Jerusalem is divided in three parts, but all the cities of the nations fall. Hallelujah! What a glorious day when the cities of this wicked world fall. A glorious day when Washington, D.C. falls. And I speak that as an American who loves his country. Who loves his country. What a glorious day that will be. Man-made cities from time immemorial have been epicenters of great evil and godliness. Man-made cities have served to turn people from God and to make them dependent upon the world. 
And there's only one man-made city. There's only one city on this earth now throughout all of human history where God said He would put His name. And it's not Rome, and it sure isn't Washington, D.C. It's Jerusalem. God said He would put His name there. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it says in the Psalms. They shall prosper that love thee. It doesn't say D.C. It says Jerusalem. So God said He was put, put His name there in Jerusalem for His purposes. And it's funny how Jerusalem, even today, is a stumbling stone for the whole world. A cup of trembling. The world goes up in arms over something that happens in Jerusalem. All confirming God's Word. Confirming it. And that's what the Bible says would be the case in the last days. But this isn't even earthly Jerusalem we're talking about here. It has a wicked nightlife. Tel Aviv, Israel has a wicked nightlife. It's one of the most wicked cities in the world. And it's one of the most pro-gay, pro-homo, everything that's wrong with our society in the world. And a lot of Americans like to point that out. Especially those in the church who are influenced with an, with an anti-Semitic sentiment. They like to point out how evil and wicked Tel Aviv and the modern state of Israel is. But I'd be very careful about that, my fellow American, because the evil and the iniquity that is in Tel Aviv today has been imported. It was imported from the United States of America because our chief export these days is iniquity. We taught them to be like that. Now you start thinking about how God feels about those who import their sin and iniquity and cause Israel to stumble. All you need to do is go back to the book of Numbers and read about a king called Balak and a false prophet named Balaam. And then you'll see what God thinks about those who export sin into the land of Israel. But we need to be very careful before we criticize a Jew and look in the mirror a lot of times. But we're not talking about an earthly city here. They are rooted in evil and their ultimate end, except for Jerusalem, is doom. Doom. We're talking about a new Jerusalem, a new city. It's not in the genealogical line of corrupted man-made cities that go back to Cain. It's a new city. This is the city Abraham looked for, for he even knew that the things he sought couldn't be found. He came from a great city, Ur of the Chaldees, ancient times, and he left. Abraham left the city. Verse 22, what about this city that's not man-made? What does it not have that many, city, many cities today do? There is no temple in the New Jerusalem. No temple. Even Washington, D.C. has a temple. The false gods. It's called the United States Capitol. It's a temple of idolatry where men have taken what is good and turned it into evil. They've taken a blessing and made it a curse. It's a center of idolatry. It gave me great joy to almost see that pagan temple overrun on January 6, 2021. It gave me great joy. It gave me great joy to see our political leaders cowering in fear under desk. And wearing gas masks because at the end of the day, they are a bunch of cowards and they're godless and they're evil. If God were to pull back the curtains and allow the American people to see what takes place in that temple, we would all be shocked. Oh, I could only imagine what goes on in there. And it, it most likely involves innocent little children. 
God sees and waits and God will repay. But even D.C.'s got a temple. Big cities all over this country that have been defiled. Their temple right there, the university or the college that makes it a town has defiled the whole city. But there is no temple in this city that defiles. There is no place where men go and take what is good and make it evil. There is no temple. I saw no temple therein. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The temple in this new Jerusalem isn't a building. It's not an edifice. It's a person. It's an eternal being. It's the Creator. They are the temple. It's a presence. Well, what this tells us is that the bride's home, this new Jerusalem, is not the earthly Jerusalem that will be rebuilt and restored in the millennium as the capital of Christ's kingdom. That is laid out in great detail in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 46. God gives the prophet a vision of the intricate details of the millennial temple, something that has never been built in Jerusalem, something that wasn't rebuilt. And God told the prophet, I want you to show the people that are captive this pattern of the future temple so that you will be ashamed of your iniquities. And that's what the prophet did. What we see here is a very detailed blueprint of the future millennial temple in Jerusalem where Israel will undergo community service and do the things uh, civilly and uh, uh, religiously that they promised God they would do at Mount Sinai and they never did. Don't tell God you're going to do something and not do it because He will make you do it. You will do it. So in a sense, we've talked about the community service of Israel in the millennium, and that's why you see sacrifices and things like that. But those chapters in Ezekiel describe this future temple in great detail, and it's located in the millennial city of Jerusalem. Show them the pattern that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. But here we have a different city. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. It has no temple. So there is no contradiction here between what John sees and what Ezekiel sees. There are two Jerusalems and two Mount Zions in the Scriptures. And you, if, you, uh, if, you don't, if you aren't rightly dividing the word of truth and seeing these things, then you're going to end up a destructive critic of the Bible and not a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. There are two. One is an earthly, one is a heavenly. Okay? And so <clears throat> there is no contradiction here between what John sees and Ezekiel saw. We actually see both of these mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. Now I've kind of talked about this a little bit, but for review, turn to Zechariah the prophet. Zechariah the prophet, chapter 8, verse 3. Here we see both the earthly and the heavenly mentioned. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. This is in the context of end times prophecy fulfilled in Christ's coming kingdom, the coming kingdom of Messiah. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth 
and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So you have two entities here. You have a city of truth, Jerusalem, and you have the holy mountain, the mountain of the Lord's house. So you have the earthly Jerusalem, and then you have what John sees here, the holy mountain, the mountain of the Lord's house, the place where there will be no curse during the millennial kingdom. Isaiah chapter 11. The mountain in the top of the mountains mentioned in both Isaiah and Micah, the prophets. So remember, we have two. We have an earthly Jerusalem that will be rebuilt and will be the capital of the earthly kingdom. But we also have the heavenly Jerusalem that descends down. And I'm going to explain later why I believe that this is one of those entities that transcends the present creation and enters into the new creation. It will be present in the millennium in the top of the mountains. It'll be like it, it'll be it'll be the only mothership that will ever come down into the vicinity of the earth. It'll be the only alien uh, invasion that this earth will ever see. And the demons and the devils know that, and the, and and their puppets their puppets know that, and that's why they try to put all this outer space aliens, UFOs, and stuff out there to try to deceive people ahead of time and to turn them away from what they know is coming, an alien invasion. And it's the Messiah, Lord Jesus Christ. And the new Jerusalem is going to come down as a mothership and be visible to all. So here we're talking about the Lamb's home, the new Jerusalem. And as we look at these blueprints, I want to exhort you again as I have before that the why ought to be the same why that God gave to the prophet. Why should we care about these patterns? Why should we look at them? Why should we think about them? Well, the reason God told Ezekiel to show the people is the same reason we ought to consider that we might be ashamed of our iniquities. Because we really are a very lukewarm church. Maybe, now, if we compare ourselves to other churches, you know, we don't maybe think that. But we don't need to compare ourselves to other churches. We need to compare ourselves to the apostles and the prophets. And when we do that, you know, I'm very lukewarm. I need to be ashamed my lukewarmness. So maybe these patterns, though they give us cause for rejoicing, maybe they should make us ashamed. There's another thing that they ought to make us right here in Zechariah 8. Not just ashamed of our iniquity and our lukewarmness, but right here in chapter 8, verse 9, thus saith the Lord of hosts. He's described patterns from the future kingdom for the remnant that has returned to the land after the Babylonian captivity. What was described in the book of Ezekiel was to the captives in Babylon. This is to the people that came back, that started a work for the Lord, and then Caesar or, or, the, or the Persian king and, and, or the local politicians put out some executive orders and mandates, and then the people started doing what they were commissioned to do, and that was to rebuild the temple, and they were in fear. And God sent the prophet Zechariah and um, uh, Haggai to rebuke them for that. And then they are given glimpses of the future kingdom. And this is why, verse 9, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, ye that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, that the temple might be built. And then in verse 13, Fear not, but let your hands be strong. So in evil days, 
God gave them detailed glimpses of future things that their hands might be strong. That they would lift up the feeble knees and quit fearing and be strong and courageous. So, as we consider these things and have considered these things in Revelation, my prayer is that they'll have the same effect that they were intended to have on Israel. That it'll make us ashamed and that it'll make us bold. Ashamed and courageous. Two things we need in the church. We need some shame in the American churches. We need some courage. And that's what these things ought to give us. Now in the New Jerusalem, the temple is God and the Lamb. They themselves, the Shekinah glory that came down on the mercy seat and accepted the sacrifice that the high priest made on the Day of Atonement. That Shekinah glory that came down and then departed. That will be ever present in the church's home. It won't come and go. It's ever present. In fact, it's the very substance of the city. John sees that in the beginning of the chapter. It was, the substance was the glory of God. The Shekinah glory coveted by the people of Israel, especially when it departed, will be ever present. It is the temple. And those who keep God's word unto the end and don't compromise will be pillars in this temple. There's a promise given to the church of Philadelphia in the beginning of this book. Because you have kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the world to try all them that dwell upon the earth. There's a rapture. It's a promise associated with it. But then it goes on to say to the faithful believers at Philadelphia, the remnant church who kept the word of God, He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That's a blessed promise. But understand that this promise is not that that the faithful will be pillars in a building, but pillars in the presence of the King. VIP access to God Himself. Never more to go out of that presence. It will never depart the camp and it will never depart them. Even when they go forth from the city to do their king's business. It will never depart. It's in and of the city and it's in and of those that dwell therein. That's a precious promise. The ever presence of the Shekinah glory of God that goes with the faithful wherever they go and never departs whether they're at home or abroad. I kind of think of what went with Moses when he left and came down from the mountain of Sinai. He left the presence of God per se, locatively, but when he came down, they noticed that his face was shining. And they couldn't even look at it. He had to put a veil over his face. So when Moses went from the presence of God, he yet carried an aspect of that presence with him. That's what I'm reminded of when I think about this precious promise for those living in the heavenly new Jerusalem. 
the presence of God. There is no temple. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. They are the temple. Now, Christ is the church's true temple. That's the lesson here. Christ is our true temple. Not a building, not an edifice, not a cathedral. And the church has made the mistake of thinking that throughout all of history. Christ has only ever always been the church's true temple. And He's also the church's true head. He is the head of the body. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Not Caesar. Not the fake president. Not the idiot in this state that calls himself a governor. Side note, just uh, uh, while I've got that thought, the president of the United States is a fake president, but don't be fooled. He's not senile, guys. He's evil. And he has no authority in the church of God because the church of God, its head and its temple is Christ. The church's true temple, the church's true head is Christ. And yet, where is the church at the end of the church age? Where is Christ at the end of the church age? Where is Christ the true head and the true temple in the American church? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's not Christ knocking on your heart and you open the door and he comes in and you pray a little prayer and everything's just good and hunky-dory. That scripture is Christ on the outside of the church that didn't do what Philadelphia did. They didn't keep God's word. They compromised it. And they're lukewarm. Christ is on the outside. That is us in many ways in America today. We are Laodicea. We are. I am. We just need to admit it. We need to quit projecting that on someone else or somewhere else. And we need to admit it, guys. We are Laodicea. And once we can admit that, then we can do or we can be what Christ says here in Revelation 3.20. Once we admit it, we're no longer Laodicea. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. As many as I love I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, what's the voice? It's the voice that's saying, you think you're one thing, but this is what you really are. So the one that hears Christ's voice knocking comes to a place where they hear what he says and accept it. 
If any man hear my voice, I will open the door and will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. He that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Christ is the church's true temple, the church's true head, not just in the future New Jerusalem, but it's always been that way. And we have removed him from that place of prominence. We have tried to do what Israel did, tried to do things in our own power. It's our great folly. God warned Israel about multiplying gold and silver, multiplying horses, multiplying women, and Solomon did every one of those things. It was his great folly. We've done the same thing. We are Laodicea. The key is, can we admit it? And once we admit it, we're no longer those that know not. We know. And therefore, we aren't Laodicea anymore. Therefore, we open the door. We need to be those in these dark days, even here where God's been good to us and God's been gracious and by His grace we've done many things right. Even here, we need to be those that hear the knocking, that hear the voice and open the door. And what does that look like? What does that look like when the church's true temple, when the church's true head is knocking on a church that has put him outside and then someone, any man, if any man, even, it only takes one person in a lukewarm church to hear and open the door. Well, what does that look like? It's not opening the door of your heart and repeating a prayer after some pastor. And then they claim you as a convert and then you go out and keep living the way you always have. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. I think the Bible in the Old Testament defines exactly what that means. Because the context and the message here is going out to a people that are lukewarm and it's going out to, uh, in a sense of rebuke, of a people that are lukewarm long after they've gotten back into the land and the second temple has been rebuilt. Malachi chapter 3 verses 16 through 18. I can't separate this scripture from the message to the church at Laodicea. I'm not able to do it. God sent the prophet to rebuke Israel. Sometime after Zechariah and Haggai. And the people had become lukewarm. Just serving God out of a sense of duty. Thought they had everything they needed. And God sent the prophet to rebuke them. You gather all this stuff and think you're doing me service, but you're gathering as if you're putting it in a bag full of holes. You've robbed me of tithes and offerings. Every last one of you is getting divorced and acting like it's no big deal. I hate divorce, God says. And He rebukes the people that should have known better. But here's what happens. He rebukes them. He, he, he exhorts them to return unto Him. In a sense to do what Christ exhorts us. Open the door and let Him in. And then look in verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. How can we, in these lukewarm days, 
discern between the good and evil, between the lukewarm, the hot, and the cold. How can we be those that hear Christ knocking, open the door, let Him in, and then fellowship and sup with Him? I think the answer is very simply laid out here. Number one, we need to speak often one with another. Those that feared the Lord... And there's no doubt that everybody in here fears the Lord. So what do we need to do if we're lukewarm? We need to speak often one to another. How is that translated in New Testament terms? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. God's executive order, H1025. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, not just in the church for prayer meeting on Wednesday night and for Sunday morning worship but in each other's homes and in our activities. I got the privilege of coming over here on Friday and helping my brother with the project out in the backyard. Ronnie was there, and it was hot and sweaty. And it was a job, but it was an opportunity to speak with one another about things concerning Christ and to strengthen our faith. That's what we need to do. Speak often one to another. So when the government tells us to shut our churches down, we draw a line in the sand and say, you have no authority here. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Caesar has no claim on the church of God. They spake often one another. Number two, we need to keep fearing the Lord. What does it look like to open the door? Speak often to one another. Gather, assemble, exhort each other. Keep fearing the Lord. Even when it seems that evil triumphs. Do what God told Isaiah to keep doing. Let me be your fear and your dread. Don't fear their fear and I will be your sanctuary. That's what this remnant did in Malachi. They feared the Lord and then finally think upon His name. We don't need to just speak one to another. We need to keep fearing the Lord and we need to regularly think or meditate upon His name. In New Testament terms, we need to feast on the strong meat of the Word. Too many are sucking the milk from the breast and they've never got off the breast in God's house and in God's book. And we're exhorted in Hebrews to move past that. We need to be... Those that only suck on the milk and don't eat the meat are unskillful in the Word of righteousness and they don't have the ability to discern good from evil. We need to be in the meat of the Word like we are today like we are going through the statement of faith of the church each Sunday. In the meat, dealing with the hard topics that people don't want to talk out about seeking an answer, seeking clarification. Because in this, we will exercise our senses, it says in Hebrews 5, to know good from evil. And what does God say He'll do for this remnant in Malachi? That speak often to one another, that keep fearing Him, and that think upon His name? He promises that they will be able to discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Discernment is a gift from the Lord, and we need it. We are Laodicea. We have forgotten, maybe not with our words, but in our actions, in our comforts, in our complaints, we have forgotten that Christ is our temple, that Christ is the head of the church, and now he's outside, and he beckons us to hear his voice, His voice of indictment. You say you are one thing, but you're really this. Let's admit it, and then we're not later to see anymore. And we're free to speak often one to another, fear God, think upon His name, open that door. He will come in, and He will sit with us and sup with us. 
And He will give us what we need to discern evil from good in these dark days and to draw lines in the sand and be courageous. I love how the New Testament just offers commentary on the Old Testament. It's nothing new. It's all there. It sheds light upon itself. Christ is our true temple. Not just... Let's quit looking at the future without embracing it in the present. If Christ is our true temple in the future, in His heavenly Jerusalem, the substance of it, the presence of Christ that never departs, then let's live like we believe that now. And that will affect our behavior. It should. We are Laodicea. I am Laodicea. I have come to love my wealth, my comfort, and my ease far too long. That's why you'll see me pack things in a backpack for a multi-day trip into the village up in Nepal that most people like Vishnu wouldn't pack. Vishnu can come here with one little backpack and have everything he needs to travel around America for weeks and share the gospel. But when I go to his home, I carry all this stuff because I love my wealth, my ease, and my comfort. We've got to be careful about that. We have all these creature comforts. Everybody in here has more creature comforts than many of the Roman emperors had of old. Creature comforts. All the talk but little action when we get a little uncomfortable. That's me. That's Laodicea. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? Well, let's start by being ashamed of it and not making excuses for it. And when we see and consider these patterns here in Revelation, like we've already talked about and we're going to keep talking about it, these patterns of the church's future home that God has revealed to us, then let us not just be ashamed, but let us strengthen our hands, keep fearing God, open the door, sup with Christ, and let's just have some courage for crying out loud and stop being like, the more I see This mess in America, the more repulsive it is to me and the more I'm motivated not to be like that anymore. And I know you guys are too. So let's stop. Let's recognize our problem. It says in Proverbs, the church at Smyrna and the church at Laodicea are mentioned right beside each other in Proverbs. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. That is Laodicea. That is the American church today. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Jesus told the church at Smyrna that was persecuted, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. I know I'm getting a little bit out of order. But that's what we ought to desire. And these things we see about our future that is guaranteed ought to make it a little easier for us. There's a reason why the pastors and the churches don't talk about future things anymore. Because the spirit that has watered down the church doesn't want to risk strengthening the believer. He doesn't want to risk getting... uh, He doesn't want to risk boldness or revival raising up in the churches. So we'll avoid the doctrine of future things. That's a subtle trick of the devil that many have fallen into. Because the power it has to embolden us, just like it did for Israel, the prophets, and the apostles. Need to be careful. Let's strengthen our hands. When Christ says, I will come in and sup with you, that means we'll have the discernment we need 
to know good from evil. The one thing the churches here in America lack most. If we let Christ come in and sup with us as the true head of the church, it's true temple, we'll have the discernment we need. Look at verse 23 real quickly. I'm going to wrap up. No temple. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, He spoke quite literally. The glory of God and the Lamb are not only this new Jerusalem's temple, they are also its light. An eternally renewable resource. Again, this is not the earthly Jerusalem that will be rebuilt and restored during the millennium. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. In that Jerusalem, the prophet Isaiah tells us something very interesting about the sun and the moon. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 26. It's talking about uh, um, the Jew in the millennium. Moreover, during this time of Christ's kingdom, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days. When is this? In the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of His people and healeth the stroke of their wound. In the day that God restores Israel and Messiah sits upon His throne, the, the moon's light will be as bright as the sun is today. And the sun's light will be seven times brighter. It's almost as if a veil is removed. Makes you think about what Paul said, for now we see through a glass darkly. When we look at the heavens and God's creation, we are seeing through a glass darkly. But one day, when the perfect is come, the veil will be removed and even the light will be brighter. It's kind of like a person that has bad eyesight but doesn't know it and just thinks it's the way it is. And then they finally go to the eye doctor and put those glasses on for the first time. That's what we're looking at. Not just here on earth, but in our heavenly home as well. The moon, there's an interesting thing here in verse 26, chapter 30. The moon and the sun shine. The, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun. The moon will shine as bright as the sun. The sun seven times brighter. There's a little clue here in Isaiah 30, 26 that NASA is not a space agency. Don't know what they're talking about. There's a little clue here. The Bible says some things about the moon that fly big backhand slap in the face of everything NASA says. But we don't want to talk about that because we don't want to be crazy. The moon is a light. The moon shines. The Bible says in the blessing that, that was given to the tribes of Israel that there are things that grow because of the light of the sun and there are things that grow because of the light of the moon and that that uh, Moses blessed one of the tribes that those things would both grow. So let's, you know, they did a survey here in America recently about people's trust in the institutions, government, religion, medicine, doctors, CDC. And it showed that Americans overwhelmingly have lost faith in our institutions. And I mean, I, that's what I've seen. That's been confirmed in my interactions with people as I walk across America but what gave me sadness is that of all of the institutions where our faith has been lost, the one of those that retains the highest amount of faith amongst American people are the scientists. 
as if scientists are always right. They're never motivated by money. They're never corrupt. It's just always objective. Now, that is the epitome of foolishness. NASA's out there today begging for money because there's this fear that China might go to war over the moon. Well, maybe if you actually believe anybody's ever been up there, if you actually believe the moon is a rock you can land on, well, maybe you could be afraid of that. But guys, money in this present day is indeed the root of all evil. And at the end of the day, we ought to be those that question what man says, especially when it's not reflected here in the Scriptures. And I don't want to go any far on that, any further on that, but Isaiah 30, 26, a subtle clue that NASA really should stand for not a space agency or never a straight answer. The Bible gives straight answers. The moon shines, and one day it will shine even brighter. But the New Jerusalem, guys, doesn't need the sun or the moon. These won't shine upon it in the millennium. I believe that during the millennial kingdom, the new Jerusalem will come down, and I'm going to explain next time why I believe it transcends from this creation into the new heavens and the new earth where John first saw it. But I believe it's going to come down. It will be situated or suspended above the earth and above the sun and the moon which I believe are local bodies. I reject the model that NASA puts forth that the sun is 91 million miles away and that it's this great big huge glob that's no different than any other star. I reject that. I reject the idea that the moon is hundreds of thousands of miles away. I believe these are local bodies. They're far, but not as far. And I believe that in the future when the holy city of Jerusalem comes down, it will be situated above these local bodies and above the earth so that it can be seen from all around the world or or, or all over the earth, the face of the earth. That's what I believe. And those things are confirmed when I watch and study the skies as I walk many, many miles across America. Now, you can do with that what you want. But I believe it will be situated there and be there for all to see. And the reason why the sun and the moon won't shine in it and won't be needed to shine in it is because it's above those things. And the Lamb and God are the light of it. We don't need that light. Psalm 48, 1 and 2, I believe, is talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. Not the, not the earthly one that will be rebuilt. Psalm 48, 1 and 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in the mountain of His holiness. The mountain of the Lord's house. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. The city of the great king. Guys, the sides of the north aren't in Palestine. They're above the clouds, above the sun, the moon, and the stars. So he's talking about a Jerusalem that is like a mountain that is situated in the sides of the north. The city of the great king that is a joy to the whole earth because the whole earth can see it. Now how do I know that the sides of the north aren't talking about Palestine? Very interesting. Turn to Isaiah 14. Verse 13, the exact same phrase. I'll start at verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Why? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Lucifer wanted to sit in the spot on the sides of the north. Above the stars where God's throne is. The center of where God's city will be situated. That's what Lucifer wanted to do. The sides of the north, he was after what in Palestine. It was above the stars. I will ascend to heaven and be like God. One day we will. Not because we desire to assert God's authority, but that, that we can be in his presence and in his light. Because he brings us to himself. That's a glorious thought. Part of what makes us Laodicea, I believe, and you, can, you saw this in the cross-referencing of those scriptures in Malachi and Revelation, part of what makes us Laodicea is that we are apt and prone to believe lies. Not just about the Bible, but about a lot of things. And we've lost our ability to discern good from evil. Now, some, of, some bodies of Christians have it more than others. I mean, this church body had enough discernment to know immediately when Governor Roy Cooper said you couldn't go to church that we're not going to start going to church. We know this is evil. We know this is wicked as hell. And, and, and it's, it, it's very clear to us. And I praise God for that discernment. There were folks that didn't have that at first. They have it now. Praise God for it. But overall, we've all lost some discernment, and we are prone to believe not lies, not just about ourselves, but about a lot of things. And we need to accept that, and we need to be those that seek the Lord, seek truth, and even be willing to exegete scriptures about things that we don't think is important. Because what matters is what God says, and God gave us this entire book for a reason. We're exhorted to sup on the meat of it, and uh, we are to compare Scripture with Scripture and rightly divide the Word of truth. We lack in discernment. We've lost it. It's a gift from the Lord according to Malachi, and we need it back. And the only way we're going to get it back is by gathering, preaching, fearing God, thinking about these things, eating the milk of the Word and getting off the breast. That's the only way we're going to get it back. But praise God, despite our frailties, despite our foolishness, despite our lack of discernment, despite all my stupidities and follies over the years, when Christ died on the cross, I was justified. Justified, just as if I died, is what justified means. When Christ died to justify sinners. It was just as if I died. And I believe that His sacrifice is efficacious enough to justify me in my sin and folly. And I believe that He rose from the grave and I believe He ascended back to the Father. And I believe it's from there He will come to judge the quick and the dead. So praise God, these things I read, these things you read, are as good as done. They're, they're secure, just as they were for Abraham who was willing to leave his wealth and his ease and Ur of the Chaldees and go out into a place that he didn't even know anything about. I praise God for that.
Our future home has a nightlife, and that nightlife is really a nightlight. It's a nightlight. Because our Christ, our Messiah, is not just the temple therein. He's the light therein. We won't need the sun. We won't need the moon. We won't be able to shake His presence. It will be ever with us. The nightlife will be a nightlight. And I look forward to that day. So let's let that nightlight shine in us even now. Let it shine in us even now. Let it lighten that door so we can open it and hear what Christ has to say. Hear His voice. Do His will. Invite Him in. Sup with Him. Even if everything about the American church goes completely off the deep end. Even if tomorrow preachers are preaching that it's okay to, to, to molest little kids. I mean, who knows where they're going to go with this? We got Southern Baptists saying it's okay now to ordain women. It's okay to be homosexual. You know, this, that, and the other. I mean, that's even infested the Baptist churches now. They may have held out a little longer than some of the other mainline denominations, but if at the end they all end up in the same place, then what does it matter? It's, it, you're, you're, you're damned. You're doomed. When people fall into perdition... It doesn't matter if they end up there quickly or it takes a little more time if you end up in perdition anyway. But whether, regardless of where this one world spirit of ecumenism and antichrist goes, we need to stand firm and not be sucked into it. And if we can just admit that we've dropped the ball, that we are Laodicea, then we're already ahead of the game because Laodicea doesn't know they're poor and in need of their temple, in need of their true light, in need of their true head. I think we know that. So, in a sense, we're not laying to see anymore. Very simple. Very simple. So, I want to go a little further today. I'm going to, I'm going to stop. Um, I want to get in next week. I'm going to get into um, verses uh, 24 through 27, and we're going to talk a little bit about... Um, how the nightlife is not just a night light. It's not a party either like it is in most man-made cities. It's actually a worship service. And that this nightlife doesn't defile like the nightlife does in America's cities. It heals. It brings healing. And I want to share a couple of clues that we're going to see in these verses about why what John is seeing here is in the present creation, not where he first saw it when it came down in the new heavens and the new earth. So this future home will be one of those amazing things that transcend the present creation into the new creation. There are four things in the scriptures that transcend the present heaven and earth into the future eternal heaven and earth. One is the word of God. It stands forever. The second is the nation of Israel. The third is the church, the bride of Christ. And the fourth is her home, the New Jerusalem. So we'll talk a little bit about that next time. I hope this was a blessing to you. I hope it was an encouragement and an exhortation. Uh, there is peace and liberty in these patterns of future things because it gives us hope. It gives us something to cling to. You know, the things we used to cling to and assume we would always have and enjoy here in America, even our founding fathers knew they were guaranteed them pass away, we've clung to them and we've realized that those foundations aren't secure, they're not sure. But it's alright, we have a foundation that's sure. The covenant
country may not believe that the Bible, as Andrew Jackson said, is the rock upon which this republic rests, but it's still the rock, whether we believe it or not, and we can still grab it, we can still rest upon it, and we can still do our Lord's will. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled. Father, we are shaken a bit by the power of your word, by the power of these detailed descriptions of future things because they are given not just to show the future but to affect the present, to compel us, Lord, to repent, to be ashamed of our iniquities and to strengthen our hands that we might do your work just as they were given to Israel. And God, you're a God that never changes, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we thank you for that. So Lord, I just ask that these things, these glorious future predictions of our heavenly home will motivate us, as it did Abraham, to be willing to lay aside the things that we're so attached to and to go forward, not, sometimes not knowing where we're going, believing God and looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. So Lord, strengthen us, help us to be a night light in this, these dark days. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the grace you've given us to see good and evil in places that maybe others can't. But Lord, there's so much more we need of you. Lord, we need the discernment that comes only from above. We need the fellowship and the sup, the supping with Christ who has been kicked out of the church here in America. We need these things, God. Help us to be those that know we are weak and miserable and poor and blind and naked and that we need that gold you offer. We need that white raiment. We need that ISAB. Lord, we need be those that overcome. Who is he that overcometh but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Lord, we cling to that. We cling to that and we cling to another promise made to the churches, Lord. Even to the dead church at Sardis. That he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life but will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Lord, we thank you for those precious promises. Hasten your coming, Lord. We ask that you come quickly, Lord Jesus. Restore these things. Make these things right. Hasten the consummation of all things that we might live in that future home that you promised to go and prepare for us. We, we long for that, Lord. But help us to occupy until you come. Help us to occupy and to be faithful and firm like, a pit, like the pillar we will be in your future, in that future temple, that future city. May we be that pillar today, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that, and that we would know that our work is not in vain. Thank you for the testimony this morning from Brother TJ. I pray you'd bless, continue to bless him in his ministry and his courage and his faithfulness. Lord, bless the food we're about to eat. As the spiritual food has nourished us this morning, I pray that physical food would bring us strength. And Lord, may even this be a time where we can speak often one to another, fear the Lord and think upon your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.